Please open your Bible to Matthew 27. Matthew 27. We're going to be turning to the end of Matthew 27 and the beginning of Matthew 28. And as you do so, I want to pose a question for you to consider. And the question is this. What is the fundamental task of the church? We are, we are gathered here together as the church. What does God call the church to actually do? Why are we here? Another, another way we might ask that question. There are lots of ways that we can answer that question. Lots of ways that different churches might answer that question. Now let that question sit in the back of your mind for a few moments. And I want to direct our attention in a very, very different direction. And that is to an ad campaign that Nike launched in 2005. This campaign was meant to promote their partnership with one of their most high-profile athletes, LeBron James, who at the time was just 21 years old. And they kicked off this campaign with the unveiling of a, a massive billboard on the side of a building in Cleveland, Ohio, downtown Cleveland, 110 feet high, 212 feet wide, featuring James and one simple statement. We are all witnesses. Nike wanted to make the point that something great is happening in front of us. We are seeing something remarkable, unprecedented, and we have to testify to that. We have to say something about it. This idea became even more explicit in 2007, and they started a witness board on their website. This is Nike, has this witness board, which includes, quote, this is from their press release, testimony from fans about James, as well as a running tally of witnesses as they are added. The press release goes on. Nike says, The witness campaign pays tribute to James and acknowledges the legions of fans worldwide who are witnessing his greatness, power, athleticism, and beautiful style of play. It's audacious. <laughs> now, regardless of the audacity of the marketing claims of Nike and how cringeworthy they might be, I want us to go back to that original question that I started with. What is the fundamental task of the church? What is the main thing the church must do? Again, there are many ways that we might answer that question, many good ways that that question could be answered. If you go to any church website and, and find kind of mission statements and, and programs launched, you're going to see expression of an answer to this question. What is the church called to do? But I think there's a far more simple way to answer this question far more straightforward way to get at what we are called by God to be and do as a church. And it's echoed in Nike's advertising campaign. We are all witnesses. We gather here today and every Sunday to bear witness to Jesus Christ. We see who God is and what he has done and we, we speak of it. We testify to it through our words and through our actions. We are all witnesses. And this is really the thread that runs through all of Scripture. That's what, what Scripture is. It's bearing witness to the reality of who God is. Bearing witness to how He works in the world. It's the, the thread that runs through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, a journey that we began together at church on September 6, 2020. And since then, Matthew has simply borne witness to the life and work of Jesus. 
He has shown us where Jesus was born and how various people responded to his birth. He took us to Galilee to where Jesus' public ministry began. He's shown us miracles of Jesus, people he has healed, leaders he has confounded. Through Matthew, we, we have heard Jesus' teaching, his parables. We've heard his judgment upon hypocrisy. We've heard his prophecies of the future. And more recently, Matthew has shown us the injustice and persecution that Jesus faced, the abandonment that he encountered on his road to the cross. We have seen the, the suffering and darkness that he endured as he was crucified and died on a hill called Calvary. We are all witnesses. Matthew turns our gaze in this moment, not so much to Jesus, but to everything that happened when he died. Joey made mention of it earlier. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. The earth shook and rocks were split. Tombs were opened and dead bodies were raised. We saw how Gentile soldiers confessed Jesus as the Son of God, how steadfast disciples, this, this group of women, stayed with Jesus, how a rich man named Joseph risked his reputation to honor Jesus. Matthew takes us to the place where Jesus was buried, where Joseph wrapped the corpse of Jesus in a clean linen cloth, and he laid him in a new, tome, new tomb, he placed a, a great stone to block the entrance of the tomb so, so this dead, lifeless body could rest in peace. So no animals and no people could disturb the dead body of Jesus. Matthew then directed our attention to two women who were there sitting opposite the tomb. Witnesses of what was taking place. And consider the, the sadness of this moment. The heartache of these women these women had walked with Jesus. They had learned from Jesus. They had been changed by Jesus. And they sit in this garden opposite the tomb. Matthew tells us in verse 61 of chapter 27 that, that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there. Now the other Mary, as we talked about last week, was the Mary who was the mother of James and Joseph who is also the mother of Jesus. Once this Mary carried Jesus in her womb, and now she sits opposite his tomb. The Saturday after Jesus is crucified, after he's been laid in the tomb, Matthew changes the scene to the religious leaders coming to Rome, still eager to protect their power, to maintain the status quo. And that's where we're going to pick up the narrative as, as Matthew bears witness to all that is taking place. Look at verse 62. This is God's word for us today. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Now, I want us to notice a few things about this section, these verses. 
Notice that the chief priests and the Pharisees who come before Pilate, they are witnesses to all that's taking place as well. They have seen Jesus crucified. They've seen him dead. And they remember what he said when he was alive. They're bearing witness to it. Now, while it seems like the disciples may have forgotten what Jesus said, these religious leaders do not forget what Jesus said. Jesus said, after three days, I will rise. Now, these religious leaders, they don't think this is possible, but they want to make sure that no one can ever make this claim, that no one can testify to this idea that Jesus is now alive. So they describe Jesus as an imposter, a fake one who, who is carrying out an identity that doesn't belong to him. He can't say he's the Son of God. He can't claim to be able to forgive sins. He's an imposter. And for the religious leaders, this was blasphemy. This is why they had him killed. But if his followers, they recognize, if his followers are able to say he has risen from the dead, this would be a far bigger problem than when Jesus was alive. That idea could, could ignite a fire that could completely undermine everything that they care about, everything that they hold dear. So in their moment of victory, Jesus is dead. As their problem has been crucified, they are still anxious. They are still concerned. And ironically, they are still under the thumb of the Roman government. So they bring their problem to Pilate hoping that he will solve it for them. They've already done this in getting Jesus condemned to death. They brought this problem of Jesus to him. Now that Jesus is dead, they, they do it again. They bring the problem back to him. But we see something about Pilate here. Pilate hasn't changed. Pilate is still concerned with protecting his reputation and power, not getting his hands dirty where they don't need to be. He really wants nothing to do with it, and he remains critical of the religious leaders. Look at verse 65. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go. Make it as secure as you can. Pilate here, he comes across as cynical. He tells them, Really? If you're still scared of what a dead man and his followers might do, take the soldiers that guard the temple, the ones that you have jurisdiction over. Have them go keep an eye on that grave. This is your problem. Deal with it. So verse 66 tells us that they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. The religious leaders, they had been witnesses to Jesus in his life. They had heard his words and they saw his deeds, but they could not make sense of who he was. They were blind to the reality of what was in front of them. And so they put every effort into ensuring that the witness of Jesus stops right here in this moment. He is dead. And he will stay dead regardless of what anyone else says. They have set themselves against Jesus Christ once again. They've taken counsel together against the Lord. They've sought to cast him away into the depths of the grave. But brothers and sisters, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Their scheming, their plotting, their vengeance is no match for the irrepressible and undefeated power of God as dawn breaks on Sunday morning. Look with me at Matthew 28, 
verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. We last saw these Marys sitting opposite the tomb the Friday night that Jesus died. Now after the Sabbath, they've come back to this tomb. And Matthew's language here is unusual. Our, our English language doesn't, it attempts to simplify it and, and it takes away from part of Matthew's point. When he writes this verse, now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, what he actually writes is this, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first of the Sabbaths. It's a very strange phrase. But Matthew wants to highlight something. As the sun rises on this day, it's not just rising on a new day. It's rising on a a new age, a new time. The first of the Sabbaths. This dawn is a new beginning. It's the first day of a new creation. The first fruits of what's to come. And these two Marys are there. They're not there because they know what's taking place on that day. They are there to bear witness to the final resting place of Jesus. And that's what Matthew tells us. They came to see the tomb, to witness it. But when they arrived, something remarkable happened. And before we we read what happens, it's very interesting to note that Matthew says nothing about what Jesus did in this moment. He just reports what happens after that, look at verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. The two Marys weren't the only people in the garden. The guards were there, as they had been instructed to be. They were there. They were witnesses to this earthquake. They saw the terrifying sight of this angel with an appearance like lightning. I don't even know how to begin to describe that. The brave soldiers that they are They become like dead men. They faint in fear. But I want you to notice something here that I think is easy for us to miss. The earth shakes, but it doesn't shake to wake Jesus from death. It shakes because the angel of the Lord descends. The stone is rolled away, but the stone doesn't roll away so that Jesus can then come out of the tomb. The stone is rolled away so that the first witnesses can come in to the tomb. The two Marys, they're they're not necessarily braver than the soldiers. They are petrified as well. How can they possibly make sense of this terrifying scene? What has happened to the body of Jesus? And it was difficult for their imagines to allow for a bodily resurrection of Jesus. So what could possibly be going on? What explanation for this is there? But then the angel speaks to them. It speaks to them words of comfort. Verse 5, But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. 
do not be afraid. It's, a, it's a, a command that comes up 70 times in the New Testament. Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. The angel testifies to what had happened to Jesus. Yes, he was crucified. Yes, he died. But he is no longer here. He has done just as he said. One hymn says it this way, 1874, by Robert Lowry. Lo, in the grave he lay, waiting for the coming day. Vainly they watched his bed. Vainly they sealed the dead. But death cannot keep its prey. He tore the bars away. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain. And he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. The angel then invites them to come to bear witness to just what has taken place. The end of verse 6 says, come, see the place where he lay. But to be a witness doesn't end with just seeing something. You have to say something as well. So the angel gives them specific instructions. And before we look at those instructions, think back with me to the beginning of Matthew. That's the last time angels have appeared. At the beginning, when, when the light of life dawns in the coming of this baby, Jesus Christ, and the angel comes to tell about it. And here again, the angel comes to testify to who our God is and what He's done. So He gives them specific instructions. Come see the place where He lay, verse 7. Then go quickly and tell His disciples that He has risen from the dead. And behold, He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see Him. See, I have told you. Verse 8, So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell His disciples. They departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. What a combination of words. With fear and great joy. But it's not just this angel that comes to them. Jesus himself comes to them, appears to them, speaks to them, comforts them in the midst of their fear and great joy. Look at verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Jesus comforts them in their fear. And then he commissions them as his witnesses. Go and tell what you have seen. When the women hear Jesus' greetings, they, they come and take hold of his feet and worship him. They bow down before him. This was not a, a, an appearing of a ghost, but a body that was alive, a body that was once dead. It's still bearing the marks of that death and has now appeared, and they bow down and worship him. Here we see an empty tomb in this appearance of this body. And I want us to note just one of the many really surprising facts of this whole scene. The very first witnesses to the resurrection weren't those who were powerful. 
It wasn't the religious leaders or the soldiers or Pilate. It wasn't the leaders in Jesus' own circle. It wasn't Peter or Andrew or James or John. It was these women. These women who in their culture, in this day, they would have been seen as weak and lowly. They weren't even allowed to bear witness in a trial. But God determined that they will be the first witnesses of the resurrection. If this was, as the chief priests and the religious leaders feared, if this was something that the disciples just wanted to make up, they would never make these women their witnesses. One commentator says, the whole story is so unlikely that no one could make it up. But this was God's design. This was God's plan to show His wisdom, to show His glory. He chose the weak in the world to shame the strong. For blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What a comfort this should be for us. The kingdom of heaven doesn't belong to the powerful, the mighty, those who don't have any problems and have it all together. That's not who the kingdom of God is for. It belongs to the poor in spirit. Comfort comes to those who mourn. Those who inherit the earth are the meek. And the first witnesses to the resurrection are improbably these women. But again, these women aren't the only ones present in the garden. After they depart, the guards wake up from their fainting spell and some of them run back to the temple. Verse 11 says this, While they were going, the women were going, Behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. These, these men are witnesses. They're attesting to what they've seen. They felt the earth shake. They saw the angel descend. So they must tell about what they've seen. And instead of going throughout the city, they go and only tell the chief priests. And with these men, there is no end to their scheming and corruption. Look at what happens in verse 12. When they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. The religious leaders, they're not interested in the truth. They're only interested in, in maintaining their reputation and their power. So they take counsel together. And they pay the guards enough to make them liars. Verse 13. And they said, the chief priests and elders, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, if they were really sleeping, how would they know that the disciples came and stole him away? Verse 14. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him, which means we'll do whatever it takes pay him whatever we need to pay him, and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now I want us to notice that the lie that the chief priests and elders want the guards to proclaim, his disciples came by night and stole him away, I want to point out that that should sound familiar to us. It should sound familiar to us because we just read it a few moments ago at the end of chapter 27. In that scene, the same group, these chief priests and elders, they come to Pilate asking for the tomb to be made secure in order to keep his disciples from going and stealing him away and telling people that he has risen from the dead. They even told Pilate this lie would be worse than having Jesus himself around. 
But now, confronted with an empty tomb, instead of trying to keep that story from being spread, which was their main concern at the end of verse 27, they are willing to pay whatever it takes to make sure that this is the story that goes throughout Jerusalem. And the story that they're telling is the story of an empty tomb. They want these guards to spread the word. Let Make sure that people know that the dead body of Jesus that was placed in that tomb, that was sealed, that it's not there any longer. The tomb is empty. That's the, the testimony of Jesus' enemies. The tomb's empty. Their stated intent was to stand against deception. But here they are doing all that is in their power to spread the greatest of lies which contains... A half-truth. Even though there are witnesses to this empty tomb, these religious leaders choose to walk in darkness and deception rather than entering into the light and life of Jesus Christ. Given the signs of the resurrection, they exchange them for, for a different explanation, a false report, a hopeless message that cannot save anyone. They say, yes, the tomb is empty, but no, Jesus is not alive. The day that they had been waiting for had come. The peace that they longed for has finally dawned. But they were too self-interested to accept it. Rather than bearing witness to the resurrection, they choose to bear witness to this partial truth that adds up to a devastating and damning lie. And I think it's helpful for us to note that, that at this very moment that Jesus rises from the grave, that we see the, the first fruits of eternal life, false gospels arise. False messages come forth. Messages that contain some truth but are meant to distort and deny the reality of our helpless state apart from Jesus Christ and how our only hope is in Him. But while this is tragic, there is good news for us today. Because you see on, on this, the first of Sabbaths, it was indeed the dawning of a new beginning. The grave had no power over Jesus. And indeed, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And it's not that Christ was risen. He is risen. It's a present reality. He ever lives above for me to intercede. Because after this resurrection comes an ascension and an exaltation, and he is seated at the Father's right hand in glory. Brothers and sisters, what happened on one particular day, 2,000 years ago, has shaped the course of all of history. It happened then. Jesus rose from the dead. And we are still talking about it today. We are all witnesses. One day, LeBron James will die. And if the Lord tarries, James and his accomplishments will be largely forgotten. Already, Nike's witness board that I mentioned earlier doesn't even exist. They're no longer keeping any tally of testimony to LeBron's greatness. But more poignantly and more relevant to us, one day you will die. One day you will be forgotten. 
But our hope as God's people is this. Christ lives. Christ is risen. Not that He did rise. He is risen. Exalted and reigning over all things. And this reality changes everything for those who hope in Him. In the resurrection, we see that Jesus is all that He says He is. This day, this resurrection day, stands as the promise and security, the guarantee that all that Christ accomplished is really true. He has been vindicated. Through Christ, we really are partakers of grace, recipients of forgiveness, brought into relationship with God Himself, though we once were far off, we have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus' body is found in a grave, his bones are found in a grave somewhere in the Middle East, then Christians are the most to be pitied. We've been living a lie, bought into a lie, but his bones are not in a grave in the Middle East. Christ is risen. We live as witnesses by living and walking in the joy of of this reality. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? While the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the implication for us is this. We must be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. Brothers and sisters, the debt we owed has been paid by the blood of Jesus Christ. The wrath we deserved has been satisfied in Jesus Christ. Through Christ we have been given access to a heavenly Father. What we could not do, God has done for us through Christ. In Jesus, there is freedom to live as God has made us to be, walking in fellowship with Him, walking in resurrection life with Him. We have been raised with Him. We have hope and joy in Him. In Jesus, we walk as sinners and sufferers in this life, yes, but we have a sure and confident hope of what's to come in the future because Jesus died and rose again. The tomb is empty. Just as sure as He rose one day, we will rise. And so we must live testifying to this reality. Our lives, our church, should exist as that which simply bears witness to the fact of who Jesus is and what he has done. We are pointers, testifiers, witnesses to the greatness and glory of another. We're not here making interesting stuff up or trying to figure out, hey, what's going to get us through next week? No, we are here to point to what has already been accomplished on our behalf through Christ. So what one thing are we about as a church? What is our primary task? We bear witness to Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, exalted over all things, and in whose presence today we stand. He is our confidence. He is our message. He is what we are all about. We are all witnesses. So may we walk in the joy of his eternal life. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. You have fully paid for all our sins with his precious blood. But not only that, you have won us to newness of life. 
You have given us the gift of eternal life, and we have proof of that gift in your Son's resurrection. Thank you for the resurrection life that we have been united to in Jesus. May we be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in love for you and for one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.